Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about a topic that I know does not get anywhere near the uh, airwaves or the attention or the spotlight as it deserves. And I'm talking today about what I call the forest entrepreneur. And in the most simple and basic terms, a forest entrepreneur is anyone that works as a forest educator and does so as part of their own business where they're generating income. And this isn't always the case. Sometimes people are going to be teaching nature and wilderness and uh, leading really wonderful experiences, and you might just donate your time. You might do it for free. You might do it at another organization. So in some cases, this might not really apply to you. But if you're charging money or accepting money for a service that you're providing, for an experience you're offering, then you really are an entrepreneur. And I'm going to kind of take you through my own experience of becoming a forest entrepreneur because it didn't start out that way for me. I really had to learn this over like a maybe eight years or maybe 10 years when I first started because, you know, it really for me started when I had the vision of leading programs for children and youth, teens, to help them really connect to nature through these wilderness summer camps that I called Hawk Circle. And I started Hawk Circle with literally a very, very tiny mailing list of about 30 names from my previous summer camp campers that I had been a counselor at for a a nature camp and farm camp. And I used flyers that I made by making a cool drawing and I made a logo and I put a title on and, and I typed out you know, what the description of the program was. And I had to take my drawings and, and actually enhance them with an enlarger on a copier for like a, it at the school, at the Hawthorne Valley Waldorf school. And, you know, it was kind of like, you know, back in the olden days where you would have to, you know, enlarge your, your picture and then clip it out, or you'd have to shrink your picture in order to fit whatever graphic you layout of your flyer was. And then you'd have to use a glue stick and, you know, rub glue on the back of it and then stick it on the front, not to put too much glue on it where the paper ripples and try to conceal the edges as best you could and then create uh, and do the same thing for your, for your headers, your text, your everything. It was all done by copiers back in the day. And, and then eventually when you had a good copy, then you'd have to go over it with whiteout any place where there was like a little, little line that showed your graphic pasting and you'd have to white that out and then you could make your copy and then you would get maybe a choice of paper, you know, would either be like blue, red, or, or dark, dark green. And that was it, you know, and you just put your things together that way. It took a while to definitely do. And that's how I started my camp was I just said, Hey, I'm going to try to do this program. And I put out this flyer, sent it out as like a letter to all these campers. And before I knew it, I had a bunch of people signed up and then I was on my way. 
But for me, I didn't see myself as an entrepreneur as much as I saw myself as a visionary or a, you know, mission oriented person. And my mission or my vision was to lead children back to this very close connection to nature that I had. And so I kind of saw it as a mission and, you know, being an entrepreneur really wasn't even on the radar. I don't even think I even knew what entrepreneur was back in the day. I mean, I knew what the word meant, but it was not bandied around the way it is now, you know, some 30, five years or 36 years later. So I, I really, when I look back on that process, you know, I started because I just had this love of nature and love of teaching and wanting to make a difference. That was it. And I really kind of didn't know what I should charge for my programs. I didn't know what, um, you know, I didn't really know how to do market research. I didn't know what other camps were charging. There weren't any other nature camps that I knew of. I know there was like farm and wilderness camp up in Vermont that had been running for a while. And I knew there were other programs, but it was very difficult because there's no internet. So you can't just hop on and go type, type, type wilderness camp for teens and then come up with, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of children's programs and then kind of look and compare, you know, two week sessions or one week sessions or three week sessions. And and get an idea of, you know, market research. There was really almost none of that at all that I knew what to do. I just kind of was winging it. And it was very apparent on, a, on the business side of things that I did not have a firm grasp in those early days of, you know, what I might charge, what I should charge, what, what was I offering and how do I evaluate that? How do I put a value on that for my clients? Uh, to me, the valuation of it was almost inconsequential. I mean, I worked in the summer, ran my programs, and then I immediately got a job right after that and kept on making money. So it was not seen as something where I was going to be like, you know, paying all my bills based on just running my summer camps at that time. And it, I still kind of carried that visionary thinking for probably eight, nine, probably into about 10 years in because, you know, I just really got some money coming in from campers. I paid my staff, paid for the food, paid for everything. And then whatever was left over, I either put in the bank or I paid, paid down my car loan. And that was it. I, I really, I didn't have an understanding of how to generate income and what my profit margin, which should be, or might be, I didn't know anything about, you know, like cost of per camper day or any of these things that are figures that if you're in a summer camp business today, usually you want to have a good grasp on your numbers. And that's, those are all things that when camp directors get around, they usually are just like, we had 2000 camper days, you know, and just like, okay, wow, that, I don't know what that means. Um, but and back in those days, I, again, this is, of course, like 1989 and 1992, 96, whatever. Like Those are the years that I was just ultimately trying to figure out what could I do, how many staff could I train. If I train my staff, could I still offer a really powerful experience? And can I make it work? And, and for the most part, I believe we were fairly successful in a lot of ways. And at the same time, I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, not Luckily, nothing that was, I think, the most 
egregious mistakes where, you know, anybody got severely hurt or anything like that. But, but I just, I didn't always know how to um, manage the business side of my work because let's face it, the people I learned from like Tom Brown or John Stokes or Frank Sherwood or Jake Swamp, like none of them ever talked about money really um, ever. So they never said, Hey, you know, go back and lead people back to the earth. That's your vision, blah, blah, blah. They never said, Oh, by the way, uh, you know, you might want to file your taxes and you're, if you're going to charge for camp knives, you need a New York state sales, uh, reseller <laughs> certificate and so forth. And you're going to have to charge sales tax. Like they didn't share anything on a practical level. It was all just vision, uh, visionary based. And, and that's fine. Like, I'm not complaining about that. I'm just laughing about it because I kind of dove into it and being, you know, 26 when I started it, I was fairly naive and, and the fact that the internet wasn't a thing back then at all, you know, I just didn't have easy access. I mean, I think now today in today's world, if you said, Hey, I want to be a forest educator, I want to be a forest bathing um, you know, going, taking people on these guided forest meditative walks, you could look those things up now and you can get a lot of information very quickly. You can look up the trainings with how much are those, like you can do a lot with just sitting on your computer or your phone in an hour that would take me, you know, months to do with at a library or like asking people or writing to people or looking in magazines, like it was just a, it's a completely different world business-wise now. So, um, but, but back in the day, I started my, my work as a forest entrepreneur and, and everything, again, was just focused on, can I deliver an outstanding experience? You know, and, and I, I didn't mean that as like a, you know, like I'm a hotel or something. I just was like, how could I create something that would really have a positive impact on people's lives? And, and that was enough, like that kept me busy. And I really, really dialed in on that. And, and that was, that was my metric. You know, that was the bar that I was trying to get over and, and trying to learn about and, and master and so forth. Eventually though, I had to begin really figuring out, well, what is it that I should make? How many people can I have in a camp? you know, or in a program or a workshop, I started doing other adult workshops and I did some different training programs for people who wanted to learn about earth skills and teaching that. And, you know, again, I just sort of put it together. I mean, the people that I was comparing myself to in a way were like people teaching at like Omega at the Omega Institute or, you know, Rosemary Gladstar teaching a, or, you know, a, an herbal class for one day or Susan Weed teaching a two-day retreat or a five-day retreat. So I was looking at different people who were running things and then trying to kind of guesstimate what the market would bear uh, and what, you know, what would get people there. And as a forest uh, entrepreneur and as a forest educator, I also, um, as I look back on it, I really understand how my background as, you know, growing up as the, you know, child of a, in a working class family that did also impact 
what I did and how I went about doing it. I mean, let's, I mean, I'll be really honest. Like my stepfather was trying to support a family in 1978. He was trying to support a family of five as a dairy farm laborer in rural upstate New York, you know, and, and my mom didn't work. She was a homemaker home with the kids. My mom baked, you know, like 10 or 11, uh, loaves of bread every Saturday. And I used to help her knead the bread and, and bake it. And, you know, some, some weeks we had loaves that rose high and were like fluffy and beautiful. And other times we had, you know, kind of like, uh, rye bread bricks that came out that you could, uh, you know, redo our fireplace if you will, if you will. And, uh, those sandwiches were very hearty, if you know what I mean. Like <laughs> it was definitely kind of like, uh, I felt like at times I was living in a Russian fairy tale, you know, where they're eating a crust of dark brown bread. And, uh, anyway, good times, I guess. My family lived really modestly and we relied on things that helped us from, you know, the in-laws and the, you know, my grandparents and so forth that would donate a little bit or kind of, you know, have a little bit of something keeping us going. And it was, it was, but it was not easy. It was definitely tricky to manage that, that experience as a, as a kid, because I didn't really ever have access to an expectation that I would, you know, of course be able to go, oh yeah, I'm going to have a car or I'm going to be going to college and it'll get taken care of and we'll, we'll make it work. Or, you know, oh, oh, I can afford to go get an attorney or I can afford to get an accountant. Everything was kind of like, how could you do it yourself? And, you know, pull yourself up from your bootstraps and everything, which is not a bad thing to do. Um, but it did have an impact for me, because I know that it, it, because I was in that world of not quite having enough, I was always really reluctant. I was very resistant to raising prices. And when me and my team would sit down in the fall and say, Hey, we probably are going to need to raise our prices. The cost of this has gone up. This is, this has gone up. That's gone up. Uh, I would just go like, Hey, let's do it next year. You know, let's, let's not, let's keep it as low as possible so we can have as many children coming. And it took a number of years for me to realize that when I did raise my prices, sometimes we actually got more children coming in. And then I realized, Oh, our camp was probably really way underpriced. And there were people that parents that probably went, Oh yeah, that camp probably can't be that good. If it's like, you know, that low that's just too low for a professional outfit to be running. Uh, so I found that in some cases, you know, campers, more campers came and some cases, um, we did have some people that said, Hey, can we get scholarship help? And we were able to then say, Hey, we're going to help these folks out to come as well. So there was a lot of learning over my 35 years of doing this. And I mean, I'll be really honest, like, like I'm not proud of the fact that it took me a long time to figure these things out, but I also, I'm okay being honest about it because I'm, I'm aware that when I was learning these things that I had a, you know, a big heart and I, and I just, I just really wanted to make a difference and I didn't want money to be the thing that got in the way for these children. Uh, for these uh, teens or for other people coming and, and being part of our program. And 
At the same time, we also had to pay our mortgage and pay for the equipment and, and everything just kind of always kind of creeps up as things do in life. So eventually when it got kind of tricky, I started to go to uh, people who ha I know have been in business for a long time and they would just ask me a lot of questions and say, you know, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And I would tell them and then they would say, oh yeah, well, you're, you have a business and your business is childcare. And I would say, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm in a, I'm a, a vision. This is a vision for me. This is a mission oriented thing. This is what I'm doing. It's like so important to me. And I remember distinctly talking to someone once and they just said, yeah, but you're working with kids. And he's like, you're in childcare. And I go, yeah, but I'm different than, uh, you know, a regular camp, a regular summer camp. I'm different than a daycare. I'm different than, you know, alternative school. This is like really a, a gift from my heart and all that. And, and my friend would just go, it doesn't really matter, dude. Like he's like, you, you're in childcare because your, your parents are giving their children to you to look after for a certain period of time period, whether it, whether they're in a daycare or a day camp or a sailing camp or a Shakespeare camp or whatever it is, it is considered a childcare type program. And you have certain basic realities that that is how it's seen from the outside world. And that's, you know, that's what you're in. And I, oh my gosh, that bugged me for years. I just, every time I think of it, I'd be like, you don't under, you know, he doesn't get it. And as if like he was in the same room. I mean, he lived in my head for a long time. <laughs> Oddly enough, funnily, you know, happily enough or, or weirdly enough, I came to understand that he was 100% correct. And that is ultimately what I realized was that to the outside world, it is 100% true that they will see what you do in a very specific lens or a specific focus. So based on whatever type of forest educator programming you're doing, whatever it might be, whether it's a gardening program, a woodworking program, or trail building, or I mean, you know, you name it, uh, working with the elderly, coming in and doing school programs, whatever it is you do, you're going to have a, a kind of a mainstream category that you'll probably fit most closely to. That, that's not to say you're like all the people doing, you know, in school field trips or, or, you know, at a rite of passage for teens, for homeschoolers or whatever it is, not everybody's going to be exactly like you, but you will fit in a category that is going to, you know, pigeonhole you a little bit and where you will have to find your way in that category as far as how people see you and, and how you're uh, seen by the state or the county or the city or what, whoever is your kind of governing body that will just give you a permit or give you the okay to do what you're doing. And that's really okay. It was hard for me, and I'm, I'm hoping that it's not going to be that hard for most of you. But being a forest educator and a forest entrepreneur means that you have certain realities that you're going to have to figure out where your income is coming from to be able to allow you to do what you want to do. And some people, you might be lucky enough to say, hey, you know what? 
I have a trust fund. I'm set for the next, you know, five generations. My family's all set, which is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this to be facetious or even sarcastic. But if you're someone who's lucky enough to have somebody in your family that has had a substantial income where you don't have to necessarily rely on income, then you can do things at a, you know, like money is not going to be the primary driver of some of the things you're going to do in terms of how you make decisions and so forth. And you might also find that you have access to funding where you can say, hey, let's buy a 50-acre farm in Virginia and then make a nature program there. And we'll we'll pick a piece of land that's right next to the school so we can do after-school programs. They can just walk across the street. And we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Oh, we need an anvil for a blacksmithing program. And we need, uh, well, we got to build a little barn and we're going to do this. And we're going to do that. You could, if you have the access to those kinds of resources, then that is fantastic. If you're someone that doesn't have those things, that's okay. You can still find a lot of ways to meet the needs of your your program that you're wanting to develop. And you can do that through donations. You can do that through networking with people who already have some of the things that you'd like to use. Like there's usually somebody, I mean, around when I drive around upstate New York, there's a ton of barns and farms that nobody's doing anything with. And there are people that own that land that are probably going like, hey, maybe they would be open to renting their farm for a small program. So you can, there are things that are available if you look and it might take a little while, but if you keep looking, you will find something good. I know that that to be true. I know a lot of people who do that work that way. So another, another aspect of this is that if you are lucky enough not to have to charge a lot of money for what you do, you will still run into an issue, which is if you don't charge something for your what you do, people oftentimes tend to, to not value what you're offering because they it helps people to have some skin in the game, to have to be invested. I, I found that when I would run free programs, I would say, you gotta you I'll run a free program, you gotta pre-register, you gotta call me, get on the list, and then you can come to this program learning wild edible plants or something for for free on Saturday afternoon. And I can't tell you how many times I would have 20 people signed up for a free program. And then on the day of the program, there'd be two people show up because none of them had to make any kind of commitment and or express a certain value. And so it was very easy to just call me and get on the list and then just blow me off when they some a better, they got a better offer. So you want to really find, there is a line where you want to make sure that the right people understand that there is some value to what you're doing and to make sure that they are willing to earn that in some way. Doesn't necessarily have to be financially, but but there has to be some way to really um, build that in. And in fact, we actually had a group of people here uh, that were going to do, they were going to run a retreat here at our program at Hawk Circle and they were offering a youth leadership program to high school students. And they were just like, hey, it's going to be free. It's paid for by this foundation and all this. Everything was all set to go. They had rented our place. They were like really pumped up about being here. And I was going to lead some stuff with them as well. 
but they found that they couldn't get any of the high school students to buy into it. They didn't, they didn't, number one, the high school students didn't really know the people that were running it. And if they don't know you, they don't necessarily trust you. They don't know if they're even going to have a good time or not. And they, it was free. And so it just felt a little bit like, why do you want me to do this so much? And, and then I think the description that they used also didn't quite vibe or something, whatever it was, things didn't align. And then the whole thing fell apart. And that was a bummer because this was a really, really awesome program and a really cool vision and had a great mission and everything, but it fell apart because, you know, of, of, a of a evaluation and an ability to really convey what it was all about. And I'm going to just say that it helps to have somebody promoting what you do, who's also a little bit hungry and who is motivated. And I mean, not just motivated by money, but, but really going to put themselves out there and really fill this program, like make that commitment to fill it. And what happens when you have a lot of people that are in a, like a, sometimes a, how do I say that? Like a nonprofit, if they're on the committee for that, if they're all financially set, and so they don't need the money. The money's not going to go to them. And the program is something that they're kind of like, hey, I'm really behind it, but I'm not actually going to run this. And I don't necessarily have the passion. What happens is that it just translates to, it's a kind of a nice thing that's not, it doesn't have any real edge. It doesn't have any juice or whatever. And and so they they ended up losing some money on it because they just had set it all up. And then it just fell apart. So hopefully they get it together and they find somebody to really, you know, lead it and uh, launch this thing. But we'll see. So that being said, uh, you know, when you are putting together whatever you're thinking of doing, it's really important as an entrepreneur to really be clear on what is the, you know, what is the mission? What is the vision of what you want to do? And you want to have, you know, goals, you want to have objectives, you want to have, you know, an understanding of like, what are your values? So in other words, you, you want to know, like, if your, if your experience is going to be really student driven and given, giving them a very student led experience, that's very different than say, running a program where you're like, I'm going to teach kids how to do woodworking where we're using like sharp tools and there's a certain style that you have to maybe fit into to teach that where you can really make sure that they're going to be safe and it, it some things aren't going to be able to be student-led as much as you're going to have to really go hey here's here's how we're going to make these five projects in our program and that you're going to take them through those steps so that they get the basics so that then they could come back and do a student-led program the following week because now they've got that baseline of skills. So like whatever it is you're going to do, you have to really think it through very carefully. And once you do that, you have that's the kind of beginning of your of your business plan. And then once you have that business plan started as far as what you're going to do, what is what are you going to deliver, who are you working with? What values are you going to have and so forth? At that point, you, a lot of other things will start to come into play 
And you're going to have to answer more questions like, is this regulated by anybody and do I need a permit or do I need to get certified or what are the things I'm going to need to do to make this happen? And what resources do I need? And what tools do I need? And, you know, what are the supplies situation looking like? And so you'll just, I mean, and what will happen is that it kind of, if you're new to being a forest entrepreneur, you will do probably what I did, which is like, you will like look at it all, get overwhelmed and then get stressed out and then go, okay, forget it. I'm not doing it. And then, you know, a couple months later, you'll pull it out. You'll think about it again. And then you'll be like, oh, maybe I can do it. And you'll get overwhelmed. You put it away. But eventually, if it's something that you feel really passionate about and you want to make a difference and you want to um, change some lives or whatever, you'll go, hey, you know what? This isn't that bad. I can do this. I can do that. So then at that point, you can start to say, all right, let me do this. And you can also get help. There are a lot of people now who have run businesses who can probably help you a little bit to get you on your way. And I'm going to just stop for a second and say, it's also okay to recognize that you may not be a forest entrepreneur. You may not want to do all of this work. It is a lot of work. There's no other way to say it. It is brutal at times because you're wearing a lot of hats. You're doing social media. You're doing your taxes. You're doing the accounting. You're going shopping. Everyone else is sleeping at night and I'm driving around going to Walgreens looking for all the first aid supplies because, you know, somebody forgot to give me the list and camp is starting tomorrow. So I've got to go get all those supplies so that we're ready. You're, you're just, you're dealing, you're dealing with inspections and you're dealing with making all the training program stuff and, and, you know, just creating all the things that you need to do. Like it's a lot of work and I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't say a hundred percent, not everybody is cut out to be an entrepreneur. And there are many people I know who, if they said, oh, I want to run all these things. And I, I and they said, I want to run this on myself. I could look at what their skill sets are. And I would say, you're probably better off working for someone else and partnering with them and letting them do the entrepreneurial stuff. And you do the programming thing because you're awesome at the programming part. But just because you're awesome, just because you're an awesome tracker doesn't mean you're going to be able to pull this other stuff off. And if you don't really pull these things off, it, it will be a big, giant, snarly mess. And you don't really want to see what happens when that happens. So it, I'm just going to say it's okay not to be an entrepreneur. And it's okay to be an entrepreneur and therefore play, play to your strengths, do what feels right. For me, I had to because I didn't have, in my mind, I didn't have another program that I could partner with. That was a story that I told myself that was probably true because I didn't know that many other programs and I, there was no internet and I had no way to know. Now, if I had instead... Instead of starting my own program, if I had gone to, say, work for Outward Bound or go to work for the Audubon or Nature Conservancy, if I had gone to some of these larger organizations and said, I, I want to do this work, I might have been able to get in on, on the ground floor on some programs and actually create that, that within a larger organization. And guess what? My life probably would be very different right now 
And I might have been able to like avoid a lot of these issues that I struggled with. Um, I, I do have like ADHD and luckily I, I figured that out last year. So my life has gotten a lot better uh, because I've understood that. But prior to that, like it was a monumentally a struggle for certain things at certain times. And I did the very best I could, but it was difficult. But that being said, I wanted to be an entrepreneur because I didn't know of any other place that was doing this. And my, my background said, yeah, if I ask other places, do they want to partner with me? The answer is probably no. And so it's easier for me to avoid rejection and just do my own thing than it is to actually put myself out there. Uh, I guess that's an, uh, an ADHD thing too, that rejection sensitivity or whatever, where you just don't want to, you don't want to risk put, getting rejected. So therefore you just opt out or you just don't even go there. It's like, it doesn't exist. So, so that probably helped me, held me back. And I would say that if, if you are looking to do something really cool, it's okay to just ask lots and lots and lots of people and say, Hey, this is where I really want to work. You got any ideas, got any places that you've heard where they're looking for someone like this? Is there an agency or an organization that is wanting to do this and I could partner with you or whatever? So please don't be afraid to pursue that if you can. There are lots of people that are really good at the entrepreneurial stuff and they are not good trackers. I mean, not that they're bad trackers, but they're, that's not their strong point. Their strong suit is not to be getting in front of a group of kids and teaching them how to get into a debris shelter or, you know, bending over and cranking out a hand drill fire or taking people tracking down by the river or whatever it is. There are some people that that's their strength. And then there's some people that are like, Hey, I'm really good at doing all the back end entrepreneurial stuff. So, okay, you get it. Partner with people if you can. But we're going to go back, cycle back here to the part about getting overwhelmed. In today's world, you do have to look at, you know, the money aspect, which is like, what are you going to charge for those experiences? And what do you need to charge? Like, what are the things? Are you providing food? Or do you have staff members you're paying? Are you paying for leasing a piece of property or renting a property or, you know, you're managing a property you already own? Whatever it is, you just want to look at all those things and add those up to get a, you know, to get a kind of an idea of, all right, if I'm doing something, say with a summer camp, you're like, okay, I'm doing that for two months in the summer and my, I'm leasing this property for X number of dollars. So that means that every day I need to put so much money aside to cover the lease. Every day I'm covering electricity for the coolers and the refrigerators. Every day I'm going to be putting something down. I have to, I have to make sure that I'm going to pay my accountant to do payroll for my staff. I have to make sure I have food. What, how much is that per day per camper or whatever? And so all of those things are things that are numbers you can easily do and find. And then when you look at all that and you go, okay, well, here it is. This is how much I need to charge per camper per day in order to, for me to get paid at the end of the at the end of the program and for the people helping me and all those expenses, I need to get, this is my number. And then you kind of try and go, all right, I probably should add like 10% because stuff happens and <laughs> you want to have contingencies and all that. 
and you want to pad those a little bit. You know, if, if your first aid is like $300 a year, you might, you could kind of turn around and say, all right, let me put $400 in because there might be some really cool thing that you want to spend some money on and, and get that will make your program better and safer and all that or whatever. So anyway, then at that point you compare, like, is my price comparable to other programs? And if it's way low, then you might think, uh oh, well, if I charge what they're charging, then you're going to have a bonus. You're going to be able to surplus and you can then, you could always give some stuff back. You could have a scholarship program. You could do other ways. You could actually pay your staff more if you want and, or take them on a really cool trip. Or there's a lot of different ways that it all can kind of un, unfold, but you get to choose a lot of those things. And you also have to know that, you know, your numbers are going to be based on how many people actually show up, not what is your capacity but who actually shows up. So if your capacity for your program is 30 people and your forest bathing program and you only get 10, well, then you need to know, okay, well, I, can, I can't run this program for less than six people or otherwise I'm losing money and that money's coming out of my pocket or whatever. So you'll have to understand those, you know, minimums and all that. And hopefully, hopefully by now, if you're someone that's like, I want to be a forest educator and I want to be an entrepreneur. And then you're listening to me talk about this. I hope you're just not like sitting, you're taking notes and then getting really overwhelmed and then hyperventilating and then going like, forget it. I don't want to do it. Let me just say, there are a lot of people who are wanting experiences like what we can offer and are willing to, you know, help you as an educator to be successful and they want to take your program. So know that if you do the work for this, you do have a good chance of success, especially if you're in an area, in a region that is economically, financially, fairly well off. Like in other words, if you go to some place where you're like, oh, I'm, I'm in this town and the three factories that were in this town all left in the last two years and everybody's leaving and there's for, you know, for sale signs and nobody has any money. Like if you start a nature program in that town, you probably will struggle. And you, you know, will you teach some kids? Sure. Will some, will some of them be able to pay? Sure. Then some of them you might not be able to, it, you're probably just going to have trouble be having a lot of longevity there. And it's okay to do your work and be creative and to, you know, maybe go, Hey, I'm going to do some programs here, but I'm also going to drive 45 minutes to another city where there is a lot more affluent, um, people, if that's your target market, where I can make the bulk of my income, um, doing other programs there. So that in other words, you don't have to leave anything out or behind, but you can find ways to augment your income so that you can be, have a diverse, uh, diverse sources of things that will support you. You can also reach out to businesses and say, Hey, is there anybody that will sponsor you? Um, sometimes you can get income that way that will support what you're doing. There's a lot of different things. Uh, one thing I'll just throw out as well, just since I'm, I'm in this deep in this, uh, in this topic right now. And that is if you're someone that is doing a forest education program and you're an entrepreneur you're doing okay, but you're not where you'd like to be. And you think to yourself like, oh, 
oh, I know, I'll just become a nonprofit and then that way people can just donate to us and that will make things a lot better. I'm just going to say <laughs> that that is not always the case. You do not always get a lot of donations. Uh, it, it was the case in the early 90s where there was a lot of money, people that were set to retire prior to the stock market collapse of like 2008. There was um, a period of time when I was taking fundraising classes and they were just going like, man, there was a lot of people who are boomers who are ready to retire and that money is going to be something where people are going to be able to donate or give, especially as people get older and they really want to give to things. However, when the stock market crashed in 2008, billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars evaporated in a period of a few weeks and it just disappeared and it was all stocks and you know it was all that imaginary money or whatever but the bottom line was that the value of what people had really disappeared and went down and that was for the average person and so what what they what happens is that you know people who are somebody who's working class who also does have a big nest egg tend generally tends to give more than people that are ultra ultra wealthy so i'm just going to say i mean every foundation that's out there is is putting out grants and they generally are not giving you enough money to really sustain you and it's a lot of work to get to become a nonprofit and then maintain that status and have your board meetings and do all this work let alone do all the grant writing, let alone do all the fundraising visits and asking people for money. Like, in other words, it's it just becoming a nonprofit doesn't like open the doors and make everything perfect and easy. So that is not what I've seen. Now, there's exceptions to every rule. So know that and say, you may be the exception and you, you may go, we became nonprofit and we're on easy street. And I'm like, right on, if that happens, please write to me and tell me and go, Ricardo, you're crazy. Nonprofits where it's at. And I will change my tune. But I haven't seen that for a lot of places. Some places I have and some places I haven't. It generally tends to help if you're in an area that's doing well financially. So in other words, if businesses are doing well, they tend to give more. If the community is doing well, they give more. If the median income in your area is very, very low, like close to the poverty level, it's just, you're going to, you know, do your homework. Okay. Just all I can say, you have the internet, please, please use it. Like, please don't just use your phone to play Candy Crush or to just, you know, hang out and post on TikTok or whatever. Like start asking people, reach out, talk to people, find out, you know, what the deal is. And, you know, Ask other nonprofits in your area, hey, are you guys on Easy Street? And they're probably going to laugh in your face. But, you know, every museum that I know of, most art, art museums, most other like charitable organizations are struggling too, um, ex with some exceptions. So keep that in mind. Um, now, let me just say that when you are an entrepreneur in doing this work, it really helps to have somebody to help you and mentor you through some of these things to both like give you an idea of the lay of the land. So in other words, imagine that forest entrepreneurship is like the name of a 
of a, of a country and you're like, I want to go visit forest entrepreneur. It sounds really good. Are there waterfalls? Is there, you know, are there Oompa Loompas and chocolate rivers and you know, all this stuff. And you go, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. It helps to know who has been there and knows what the landscape looks like. And there's no one source for that, but there are people that can help you and guide you through like, Here's generally some of the places that this is what you want to say when you go talk to a bank. This is what you don't want to say when you're going to talk to a school to maybe do a field trip. Here's some things you might want to say if you're applying for your nonprofit status or to partner with a nonprofit already or whatever. Like it helps to know what those customs are. Uh, my sister used to work in Germany um, for a long time and she her niche that she had was she worked with teaching English to Japanese businessmen who were doing, you know, business in the EU, you know, the European Union. And so she would actually, she took the time to learn a lot about Japanese culture. She actually worked in Japanese restaurants. She met a lot of Japanese people. She got to know them. And she found out that Japanese People do not like to learn English from people who are American who are really kind of, you know, clueless and ignorant. And so she was like, oh man, she just figured it out. She would have somebody come in. She would say, hey, there's no pressure. I'm going to tell you all about what I do. I'm going to have a, some tea. Like she observed Japanese form formalities in their culture. She didn't assume or become too familiar. She made sure to be really respectful. She said, you have to think it over. I, I don't decide now. Like she was just very, very kind and very um, communicative. So, and she talked in a way to make sure that they understood what she was talking about. And these are people that knew English, but they just wanted someone to be help them brush up on English because they were going to be doing business deals and so forth. And they wanted support. And... Let me tell you, nobody else that was doing that work was doing what my sister did. And she got tons of clients and they, they would go and do really lucrative deals and give her huge tips and stuff like, and she was just like, wow, thank you so much. And they were like, no, thank you. Because they felt like they had somebody they could really confide in, you know, while they were there and so forth. She got great referrals. I mean, she was just busy all the time. So Anyway, the point is learn the lay of the land, have someone tell you and show you how not to do certain things that will make life more difficult, right? And this, I guess this is my, my most important piece here is not all business coaches or internet coaches or consultants are really going to help you if you are a forest educator and you're trying to do something really unique and, and powerful and special, a lot of business coaches out there, they, they are looking for someone who's wanting to start a business in weight loss or being an online entrepreneur or being an influencer or something that's very mainstream and very money oriented. And they do not understand what our motivations are. And they generally don't understand how how this whole thing really works. They don't really understand what we do. And it is tricky 
to translate what they will do. They will talk really, really fast and they will move through. So you want to be very, very smart before you start giving them large sums of money and saying, oh, this is the person that's going to make it easier. They will entice you with all this money you're going to make and talk a lot about it. And then, then at the end, after nine months or a year or whatever, you're going to still be sitting there with very little to show for it oftentimes. And they all got paid and then they'll turn around and blame you and go, well, you didn't really follow the program. So (laughs) I have heard that many times, many, many, many times. So please be smart. Just it's much better to talk to people who've been in the business for a long time, you know, call up a school and say, Hey, could I come down and uh, buy you lunch or something? Can I find out what you guys are about? And and get some support. Maybe there's people out there that can coach coach you through certain things and you know, you will expect to pay for the for being guided to some degree. But most of the time people who are wanting to coach forest educators understand that you're not making necessarily a lot of money and you probably don't have huge bags of cash. So, we're just not going to try to bleed your savings dry or whatever generally. And if somebody is too expensive, they're too expensive and that's okay. So you just move on to somebody else. But but just be aware that a lot of entrepreneurial business coaches are not necessarily doing it for your best interest. They will say that they are and they they believe they are, but they oftentimes are not quite really able to pull it together. So, you know, just be careful. Just be really careful. And if you get like stars in your eyes and you listen to someone and they give you a free consultation and they dazzle you and you're just like, oh my gosh, everything's going to be perfect. Like, you know, red flags should be going off in your head. And, you know, it would be like somebody saying like, I'm going to take you deer hunting and everything's going to be so magical. And I'm just like, yeah, that's not really the case. There's a lot of times where you're just sitting outside, freezing in the cold, and you didn't see anything for five days and it sucks and it's still wonderful to be in the woods, but you know, you don't have anything to show for it. So other than your memories, I guess. So just be aware that you got to really pay attention to what you're doing. If you're looking at just starting out, I mean, how do I close this? I don't want this to go too long. I I'm <laughs> the last thing I want to do is close on kind of a downer side of things, but I'm just going to say that it does help to have a program and to also be very smart about your money if as an entrepreneur. So in other words, it's okay to work a part-time job while you do this part-time. It's okay to be really clear and have the talk with your partner. If your partner is someone who has a steady income and can help provide for the family while you do it, that's okay too. But you want to talk about it, right? So it's okay to be a nurse. It's okay to have a teaching salary. It's okay to have a construction business or some other thing that really helps support you so that you don't feel stressed. There's nothing worse than feeling really stressed about finances and trying to also at the same time run a really awesome program when you know that bills are coming due and you didn't get enough people and so forth. So it helps to really plan and learn a lot of the basics before you go out there and put yourself at risk. So, but when you do, I will say that when it's successful and when you have it all humming, 
it is awesome. There's no better feeling in the world than to have something that is just humming along, working great. People are getting incredible things from the work you're doing. And you're also able to just handle your business in that way. So, uh, yeah, this is just, I guess I should say, maybe this is part one. I don't know. I'm not going to do a part two for a little while, but, uh, but it could be the, uh, introduction to forced entrepreneurship. Uh, but I would just say, please, if you're getting, listening to this and you're thinking about it, send me a message. Let me know if it's something that you're interested in learning more about. And if you have questions, uh, I can try to steer you a little bit if I can and just, uh, get out there. And if you've been running your, your entrepreneur program for a long time, just know that there's oftentimes there's little things we can do to get better. And sometimes even just a little bit better can really make a big difference in your business and in your, your mission. So, um, all I know is I, I have been able to take care of a lot of things with our program over the years and pay a lot of bills and support my family and do some really good work. And so I really encourage you to just think about this and think about it, especially if you're in it for the long haul. If you're, if you're just looking to kind of make a quick buck and do a couple of youth programs and then get out, um, it might not be for you, but you can try that. But fly by night kind of operations are usually tricky to pull off because yeah, most people can kind of smell if you're not really committed. It, there, there are telltale signs. So, um, yeah, forest educator entrepreneurship is a powerful, awesome thing. I think that the innovation, I mean, all of the forest schools that are out there are, you know, forest educator initiatives. You know, they are entrepreneurs um, forging a new path and being pioneers, and they're making a huge difference in our educational landscape here in the United States and in the UK and in many places across the world. So it's really powerful and we need you. And I hope that you will, uh, just keep it in mind that if you want to do this, know that there are ways to do it and there are easier ways to do it and you don't have to do it alone. So best of luck to you. I hope you have a great fall and, you know, thank you for doing all you do already. And hope you like this episode. So let me know and take care. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator, nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level you can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.